I don't know whether you've heard, but I'm offering some spaces in my calendar for supercharger fertility discovery calls. So this call is for you if you're ready to get pregnant naturally or improve your chances at the fertility clinic. We take a functional approach to fertility. It's the future of conventional medicine. There is a reason that so many medical professionals work with us. The approach is rooted in science. The call is for both you and your partner, and all you do is go to fabfertile, F-A-B-F-E-R-T-I-L-E.com and click on book a free call. Then you'll be booked in and ready to spend the 30 of the most valuable minutes on your fertility ever. I've been in the situation where you feel a need to like justify why you don't have children or it's so hard on your mind, so fresh on your mind that you're like, not yet, but we're trying, you know? And then if you do that, of course, you're opening up a whole can of worms, right? Mm -hmm. I think the question of why don't you have children is a little bit different, or when are you going to have children is a little bit different. Welcome to Get Pregnant Naturally, where functional medicine and natural fertility solutions will help you get pregnant and have your baby. I'm Sarah Clark, and my mission is to inspire, motivate, and empower you. And most of all, I want you to wake up. So with functional medicine, we can discover what causes infertility and eventually reverse the condition. Today, I'm welcoming Sharon Praiseman Fisher to the podcast, and we're digging into how to navigate triggers during our fertility journey. Sharon Praiseman Fisher is duly board certified as an adult medical and psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. She is also a wife, mother, Buddhist lay teacher, and Chesapeake Bay sailor. She is passionate about helping women through all stages of their life and does so through her private practice, Nurtured Well, in Baltimore, Maryland. Check out her website at beyondtheegtimer.com. And before we jump into today's show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this to make sure you never miss an episode. Hey, Sharon, excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Great. So if we could start with uh, how you came to uh, do this work, share your journey with us. Yeah, so it was it was really accidental in a lot of ways. Basically, this book was born out of a conversation that my co-author and very dear friend Emma and I had while celebrating her 40th birthday. I had been trying to conceive our first child, my husband and I's first child, for probably about a year or so at that point, and Emma had already had her children. And one of the stumbling blocks that I, we both found really frustrating was the stigma associated with women having children over the age of 35. And one of the reasons it really frustrated me was that at that point, I had already seen a, re- a reproductive endocrinologist, and she had said, Our, my husband and, and my ages were not at all a factor you know, that we tested really healthy, that there was something else, you know, going on. And at the same time, one of the uh, major health systems abroad had started this campaign called Get Fertile. It was, it was the UK, it was Get Fertile Britain. And it was really like a shame. We, I interpreted it as a shaming campaign, you know. And we just found that there were all these misconceptions around having children over the age of 35, about why women were delaying childbearing, and just about and the risk and misconceptions about the actual chances of conceiving. And Emma had said, you know, I really wish there was a book that, or something that could help women with this. And then the next day, literally, I called her and said, we should write this book. <laughs> and she, she was crazy enough or faithful enough, at least to go along with it. And writing became really cathartic for me during my journey. And I, we started with um, blogging. We got a blog on psychology today. It's a, that's actually still going as well, though I don't update it very often. Hmm. Um, we, we blog more on our, our uh, website. And we wrote the book. And that's, that's how I became an accidental writer. But now I love it. And I, that's how I became an accidental act, activist for fertility issues. And then really, at this point, for all things mom and pregnancy, I'm just born out of my own desire, to, my own experience, my own desire to help other people. I love it. Yeah. And as far as your own journey, so you were trying for a year. I think you, you, you talk about your journey in the book. Is there anything else you wanted to share there with your own personal journey? So it ultimately took us three years to conceive our first child. Um, the second time around was much easier. And, and all, you know, what I learned from it is you, you hang in there. Um, 
it is so worth it. Uh, we love being parents. We have two beautiful little girls and it is just really the most joyful role my husband and I have. Hmm, I love it. Let's kind of dig into some of these questions here that I have for you from uh, based on the book. And um, yeah, the book, the book is awesome. So definitely check it out. Um, so as far as handling intrusive questions about having children, what are, what are some tips you can, you can do there? Because I think a lot of people, when they're on the, the fertility journey, they may be you know, at parties or even at Christmas events or birthdays, whatever it may, you know, it may be. And it's sort of the, oh, and it's almost like this, our social question when you're out, oh, do you have children or when are you having children? And, and for someone that's on this journey, it's, it feels very like prying and intrusive. Right, right. And one of the interesting things too, when you're on this journey is you might have some days where you can't wait to talk about it. You know, you're just busting and you're like, I just need to talk to somebody about it. And other days where you don't want to talk about it at all. And that can be really confusing for the people around you. And then of course, right, there's the greater sort of social norm that you're referring to where people feel very comfortable asking other people, well, you know, do you have kids? Why don't you have kids? When are you going to have kids? And especially for people who get married a little bit later on, I think that there's more of uh, an eye on them, right? Like, oh, you're running out of time. You didn't get married till you were 37. You better be, you know, on your honeymoon trying. So what I always caution people is to take a few steps back because for in some, you never know the person who's asking, you never know what their intention or motivation is, right? And I think that there's a big difference between do you have kids or when are you going to have kids? Mm -hmm. Like they're very different questions in my mind. And in a lot of social circles, simply saying, you know, if you meet somebody at a party, oh, do you have children? It's, it's no more different than asking, what do you do for a living? Or did you grow up here? You know, it's just a way of making conversation. It's a way of connecting, mm -hmm. right? And so it's really benign. And I think that in that kind of case, simply saying, nope, you know, and not saying anything more because you might be perfectly fine with saying no and not saying anything more and changing the subject. Or you might feel, and I've been in the situation where you feel a need to like justify why you don't have children or it's so hard on your mind, so fresh on your mind that you're like, not yet, but we're trying, you know? And then if you do that, of course, you're opening up a whole can of worms, right? Mm -hmm. I think the question of why don't you have children is a little bit different or when are you going to have children is a little bit different. And that, you know, I always go back to what, what is the motivation of, of, the, of the person asking and oftentimes we don't know. And so simply saying, being really direct, but kind and firm, like, oh, you know, thanks for your interest, but I'm not open to discussing that right now. And then redirecting the conversation. And typically I found most people really like to talk about themselves. So if, if, you, if you can, you know, turn the conversation on them, you know, tell me about your children or tell me, I, he I heard you got a promotion. Tell me all about that. Or that's a beautiful bracelet you're wearing. It's so interesting. Where does it come from? You know, flipping the conversation is a really great, great way to avoid it. Now, of course, this is trickier if, say, you've been sharing your fertility journey with a good friend or your sister and they're checking in with you. And I think then, you know, really just being clear about what you need in that moment and being appreciative of their interest because chances are they're just trying to help you, right? And so they just want to check in and say, hey, it's a way of saying I'm here for you. And simply being, you know, saying, you know, I really appreciate your support right now. I just, I'm not up for talking about it. Yeah. And a lot of times it can sort to have some sort of a plan as to how you're going to handle it. Sometimes these questions catch us off guard and then we're, oh my goodness. And sort of, oh yeah, haha, ha, we're, you know, we're trying. And then we didn't even really want to say that where it's like just doing a, either a, you know, a closed no. And then, you know, as you say, re, uh, redirecting the conversation or for close friends and family, kind of like, oh, this is how we want to handle those kind of questions. And we'll open up when we're ready and we don't need to feel forced to do anything that we're not ready for. Exactly. Because it's such an intimate issue at so many levels. I mean, I think it's a very, we're getting better as a society and accepting that some people simply don't want to have children and being more accepting of that. But it's still a very charged subject. It's still very much assumed, at least in the Western world, that you get married and you have kids and that's the way to be. And if you don't want to do that, there's something wrong with you. And then there's a level beyond that, because if you are going through fertility issues, it's it's just that you're, it's visceral, it's at your core. And it's a very intimate subject because not 
not only is it one of the most painful things a, a couple can go through, but you're also at some level talking about your sex life, which we don't typically do, right? <laughs> like that's not, you know, at, at the core, it comes down to that, right? Um, and so it, it's, it's sort of very, for most people, intrusive or could lead to questions that you just don't feel are appropriate to discuss outside of your relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as, uh, so pregnancy announcements too, so a lot of times when you're trying to get pregnant, all you're thinking about, it's kind of like that. If you decide you like a certain model of car, next thing you know, you've never seen this model before. And now everywhere you go, you see the car. So if you've got, you know, pregnancy on the mind, everywhere you go, there's pregnant bellies, there's, you know, you see baby clothes, there's, there could be triggers throughout your whole entire day. So especially when you're, you're handling so a pregnancy announcement, what are, what are some suggestions there? Yeah. And so what I really encourage people to do is get off of social media to the extent that they can, mm-hmm. um, because it's such a trigger and what you can do, like for Facebook, you can unfollow people without them ever knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can even say like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm off Facebook for a while just and, and not give a reason. Just, you know, I've been spending too much time on it. Now I'm off of it. And the same thing for Instagram or any of these other ones. Like I've just decided to be more in the moment and not be on social media. But I think that the biggest thing that I see in women is they feel this guilt, right? Like they feel like, oh, but I should be supporting other people, but I just can't right now. And it's okay to know your limits. I mean, I really think knowing your limits is a form of self-care. And so you know, stopping probably the biggest intrusion in our life is social media. And then I think, you know, when it comes down to people in your more, your more day-to-day circle, people you work with, your friends and family, the more, you know, ideally people don't just come up to you. Yeah. Ideally you have a little bit of space. So it's an email announcement. It's a postcard that was sent in the mail and that gives you some space to reflect but the more self-care you can do and the more that you have the understanding that it, it, it may not even be, sometimes it's jealousy, but sometimes it's grief and understanding mm-hmm. the difference and that it's that your feelings are your feelings regardless of what they are, um, but giving yourself space and time to deal with them. And the more that you do that, the more resilient you will be when your colleague comes by and says, guess what? I'm pregnant, you know, because when someone does it face to face, you don't have that time to react you, I mean, you just react, you, you respond, right? You don't have time to gather yourself. So being the more secure you are and the more time you have spent on self-nurturing, it gives you more tools to be able to respond to the person in a positive way, in a socially acceptable way. And then you can go home and grieve in your privacy. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I like the thing about the social media. I talk to people about that all the time because it's like, yeah, you start doing that, that nasty um, comparing ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. To their seemingly perfect world. And, and it's a lot of times, you know, social media is, has, is a skewed version of reality, but yeah. And to hide some of those, as you say, unfollow and they won't, they won't see it. We also have an episode on going down the infertility rabbit hole, which then is like filled with like, sometimes people are spending like two and three hours a day on, on infertility uh, research or fertility research, which then it's, it's like this all consuming thing. And then, so respecting your, your, your boundaries, like, like, like you said, and then really focusing on your self care. And for, I guess, people that are close to you being able to say, Hey, this is what I'd, you know, how I'd like you to handle an announcement perhaps when there is one. Maybe it is sending you an email rather than a face-to-face call or something like that. So you can collect yourself. Um, obviously, people at work and things like that don't know that, you know, the journey you're, that, you're, that you're on, um, it may be a little difficult, but um, some of the close friends and family, you can, you can share how you'd like them to present that announcement to you. Right. And I think that you also always, you know, that being said, need to step back and realize that it's also an extraordinary moment in their life as well. And you're not going to be front and center in that and the understanding that you're, when they get pregnant, they're not going to be thinking necessarily first thought, how am I going to present this to my cousin who's been trying for two years? Mm -hmm. You know, that's not going to be front and center on their mind. And that's okay that it's not, this is their moment. And so the more resilient you can make yourself, the better off. But I do remember um, a real, an incident with another friend who was a very good friend and knew that I was struggling. Um, And I knew, I knew she was trying for her second child and 
I just kind of had a feeling and we had started a community garden together and we were out there working and I knew she was like afraid to tell me she was pregnant. Um, and she was so sweet about it. And I always, I always just feel so grateful for that. But I think part of why I handled it well was because I was really mentally prepared. You know, I just kind of knew she was going to get pregnant before I was and it wasn't, it just was what it was. But yeah, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought, but, but yeah, I think the more you can take care of yourself, the better off. And it becomes an issue too, right? If you struggle with fertility, like when you announce your pregnancy, I know I was, I was mindful of it. Mm-hmm. And I chose to do the email route with everyone because there were some people in my circle that were still trying to conceive. And I definitely held space for whatever the reaction was going to be. Yeah. So really focusing, as you say, on your own self-care. So your self-care to, to build resiliency and some coping mechanisms for yourself. And then, yeah, then sort of seeing how, if you are able to share with people of how you want it to be handled. But there is also another thing where you don't want someone not to tell you because they're trying to protect you. And then you're like, but wait, I want to be, I am happy for you and don't protect me from something like that. I want to be able to choose. Like there is some empowerment piece in there where someone's like, oh, you know, maybe you're not invited to certain things or you're not, so they don't want to be excluded that way. And kind of because during the fertility journey is what you really crave the most is connection. And then you end up pulling away from that connection because it can be painful to be around all these different social situations that are potential triggers. Absolutely. I mean, this whole thing, it's so rot with emotional roller coasters and emotional pitfalls. I mean, it is so challenging. And I think, right, if you're on the other side of it, you know, not to exclude the person, but to be very understanding if they're going to not come to your baby shower. And, you know, I always give women to carte blanche to be able to just turn down any event, you know, and I think you have to think about it, you know, what's your relationship to the person, right? Like if it's your sister, no, I think sitting out her baby shower is pretty self-absorbed to be honest, you know, but if it's, it's a friend that you're not that close, it's someone in your a circle, that's a friend that's not your closest friend. People miss events for all sorts of reasons, you know, and it's perfectly okay to simply not go to baby showers, assuming it's not your best friend. It's not your sister. It's not somebody that has been with you through thick and thin. I think when it is that person, I think it takes a lot of soul searching. I mean, certainly don't go if you're going to sit there being miserable, but I think again, stepping back and saying, well, when, when, put it in perspective, right? When was this person supportive of me when it might've been painful for them, right? Were you somebody that did really well in school? It was super easy for you. And they came to your college graduation when they, you know, struggled with a learning disability and just getting through college was such a nightmare for them. Did they come to your wedding when they were still single and really hoping for a partner? And so I think, you know, again, going back to taking care of yourself, but doing it in a way that's not hurting other people and feeling okay with saying no to invitations as long as there aren't going to be long-term repercussions in your relationship with that person Mm -hmm. for it um, is a way to look at it. Because again, isolating isn't going to help and ruining a relationship with your best friend or a sibling or somebody you're really close to isn't going to help either. But that being said, I don't think that, you know, I think it's perfectly okay to turn down, you know, throwing the baby shower, of course. You know, I I think it's, it's a dance. It's a very delicate dance and everybody's such an individual. And so I think the best thing to do is be really clear with yourself what you need and then express that in a way that is very loving and kind with the intention of saving the relationship. So simply saying, you know, I care about you so much and I am happy that you're pregnant, but this is really hard for me. I'll be happy to go to your shower, but there's no way I could throw it for you, you know? And then for somebody that you're less close to, just saying, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I have to miss this shower. We have a a family event that day, you know, or I have to work that day. I'm so sorry. So not feeling pressure, but also not isolating completely. Yeah, because I think we do put that extra pressure on ourselves to be a certain way when it's just kind of sitting back and pausing and saying, well, what do I really want to do in this situation? And maybe if you're in a you know, especially rough time, maybe it's sitting it out or it's like digging deeper into that quiet time and self-care piece of this if we've been running 100 miles a minute, you know, and doing all these different things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
So yeah. just really pausing and saying, well, what's, you know, what's best for me? Because a lot of times we do that people pleasing thing and thinking of everyone except for ourselves. And this is really the time when you're on this journey is to really take the time to mother yourself. Right. And what I encourage women is, you know, when you do become a parent, you're going to be saying no to all sorts of things. When you do become a parent, you're not going to go to, you know, chances are, I mean, everybody does their own thing, but you're going to have to turn down tons of invitations. If you're working outside of the home, you're going to want to rush home to see your baby. If you're breastfeeding, instead of, you know, meeting a, a friend from work for lunch, you're going to be pumping. Like, you're constantly going to be saying no. And so this is just practice for it. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's thinking of it that way. It's not selfish, it's self-care. And they're very different things. Absolutely, absolutely. I love this quote here you have from your book. So if the overwhelming majority of us can get pregnant on our own, why do we know so many couples undergoing fertility treatments? I thought that quote was extremely powerful. <laughs> thank you, thank you, we're glad. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so one of the big misconceptions is that there's this big fertility cliff at 35, and that the evidence, the research, simply doesn't support that. And, and I wanna back up here and be explicitly clear that neither Emma nor I are reproductive endocrinologists. We have not received that level of training. However, we are very good at looking for, at research, and the research clearly does not support that. Now, does fertility absolutely decline? Uh, in your late 30s. Absolutely. And, it, and there's a decline for men as well. And people don't talk about that. The decline for men is more of a steady decline um, from 20s onward. Um, with women, it does decline a little more sharply at 35, but certainly not a cliff. So for example, with one year of trying, nothing fancy, just unprotected sex, a couple between 35 and 40 82% of them will conceive within the first year of trying. And I'm not 100% fresh with my data, but I think it's something like 90% for a couple between 30 and 35. Mm -hmm. So is that significantly different? Yeah, 82% versus 90% is statistically significant. But 82% is a pretty good average. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good chance. Yeah. And it's really interesting. You know, there aren't a lot of them left, but if you meet an OB who was working before the advent of the birth control pill or an OB nurse, they'll talk about all these women that would come in in their early 40s who were pregnant and did not want to be pregnant. <laughs> you know, it was more of a problem of getting pregnant. Like, the problem was they were getting pregnant, not that they couldn't get pregnant, right? Um, so, yes, it's a decline. And Yes, you know, it's if you're not in that 82%, that's upsetting. Of course, of course, it's a problem. What's interesting is there's German research that shows that those same couples, 90% will conceive by year two of trying and like 95% by year three. Now, in no way, shape, or form are we saying just wait three years and do nothing. Both M and I are very big advocates of getting a good fertility exam sooner than later. And I look at it from the same lens that I would tell somebody to get your cholesterol checked periodically. You know, chances are it may not be an issue, but you want to know if it's an issue because there's things that you can do. And it's just good insurance. And um, in the United States, it's very variable health insurance coverage for this stuff. It's not a standardized thing. In the state that I live in, Maryland, all the health insurances must cover an evaluation. And that evaluation is very powerful because it can be a clean bill of reproductive health which then gives you more options, right? So you've, you've, it's been a year. And, and so what they say is couples over 35 go at six months. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is only 60% of couples 35 to 40, this is across the board. This statistic I'm quoting isn't about people who've been to fertility clinics. It's just across the board, looking at National Health Service data from the UK, 60% of couples age 35 to 40 get pregnant within six months of trying. So that's like normal. So it's normal that you wouldn't necessarily be pregnant in that six month period. And that's where I think people get confused because they think, oh, I'm not pregnant by six months, it's gloom and doom. And that's not the case, it's only 60% of couples. But that full year, 82%, which is pretty high. So back to what I was saying that I think we're misled, but I do think it's good to get the fertility exam and know what you're dealing with because if there is a specific problem, you can get treatment. Now, why so many people are getting fertility treatment? You know, I think it's, it's, it's really a lot of reasons. I think there's some people, it is the misconception that like, oh my gosh, there's something wrong. I got to do this. There's also a misconception about the dangers of pregnancy over 35, risks to both the baby and the mother. And they're, I think they're greatly overstated. The bottom line is if you're in good health, 
you might require more monitoring, but it, it's not like you're going to have a stroke and your child's going to have Down syndrome and that's, that's the end all be all, right? I mean, which is, which is sort of what's put out in the media. And that's, you know, not, it's, I think the chances of having a child with Down syndrome between 35 and 40 is something like one in 400. In the U.S., you have a greater chance of having, being audited for your taxes, which very few people have been. So it's, you know, again, these, these risks go higher absolutely but we're talking about relative risk compared to a younger couple versus absolute risks the relative risks are higher but the absolute risks are not that high when it comes down to it and so i think you know there's a lot of reasons why number one people buy into these misconceptions number two um, a lot of people feel like well if the technology's there why wouldn't i use that and that's valid too you know we're not here to judge people for what they do and we don't have a stance on to when you should go get treatment we do feel that you should get the evaluation but in terms of treatment like it's a personal choice and a lot of people say well if it exists why wouldn't i do it you know, what's, what's there to lose. And as far as we know, there aren't really any risks to women um, undergoing IVF. And then there are some people that, you know, they might say, I know I probably could get pregnant, but I want to have three or four kids and I want to make sure there's time to do this. And so that would be maybe another reason. But I think it's really important and our work focuses on helping women really understand the statistics so they know what they're getting into and why they're making a decision and also help them clarify their motivation and their feelings so they can make the best decision for themselves. Yeah, because I think there is some, with all this egg freezing going on, like technology can be good. I obviously am, am thankful to, for technology. I had both my kids with donor eggs. Mm-hmm. And without that, that, you know, I... You know, years later, then I discovered a food sensitivity and gut infections. And that's mm. really why I started the Get Bring It Naturally podcast, because I wanted people to know before you go straight to the fertility clinic from your OBGYN, let's look at things, look at things naturally. So it's, it's good to hear those, those stats that, and this quote that if the overwhelming majority of us can get pregnant, you know, why is the first line of defense running off to the fertility clinic, which has a, a cost, I think it's an average cycle takes three, an average treatment takes three cycles at an average cost of $60,000. Yeah, that's, that's what my understanding is too. Yeah. At least it's 20000 a cycle is my understanding, right? Yeah. And it's so an, an average IVF is 30%. There are some clinics, you know, saying 70% more, more out, out in uh, California. They're a little more, I guess, advanced in technology out there. And then an IUI is a, has a 10% success rate average, and even a donor eggs are 50% success rate. And I was just watching a documentary talking about that number of fertility clinics. In 1985, there were 40. Now in 2015, in, in the States, there's, there's 440. So wow, wow. Big freaking business, and it's a lot of money. And so looking at things naturally by looking at your diet you know we're in the middle of a huge food experiment here with a with the pesticides and herbicides that have been sprayed in our foods and food sensitivities and gut infections and people that have a regular women that have a regular periods being put on birth control and and then there's you know post birth control pill syndrome so there's a, a lot of things going on and so the first step being the fertility clinic to me necessarily doesn't make sense but it, you have to do what feels right for you and i think there's a huge piece in this with, with patients and I completely get the patients thing because I have been impatient my whole life. <laughs> yeah. I just grew up with my dad who was very impatient and I guess I must've absorbed that impatience. And it's kind of this, this panic that the media puts on us that, Oh my goodness, you're, you know, over 35. Um, you know, you've, you've got to rush over here and do this. And then even doing that is like that constriction and gets us in this panic that, Oh my God, it's not going to work. And so I think it's just to examine that and to, and to, and to just look at that a little more and see where we are if, if we're on this, this train where we can maybe get off and look at things differently. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree. And I think to your point, regardless of what path you take, having the best baseline health, I mean, I was exploring your website and I love the whole functional medicine approach and looking at the root causes regardless of what path you take, that's going to make your path a lot easier and more successful. So even if you know you're, you know, definitely going to do IVF. So so say it's an example, you know, where you, 
you lost a tube and you only have one ovary, right? We're like, there's really probably no change and they're on the opposite sides, right? So you probably are going to have to do IVF, that kind of thing. Or um, your, your husband had cancer and is no longer, is sterile. Right, so he had his sperm frozen, and so you have to do some kind of treatment, right? You're, you, he doesn't have viable sperm left from cancer treatment or something like that. That if you get in your baseline health and those root causes is going to make everything, it's going to make the conception easier, it's going to make the pregnancy easier, it's going to make your postpartum experience easier. Because we're now also looking at, um, I love that you talk about gut health. We're looking at gut health and mental health, and they're hugely Absolutely. related, hugely related. And, and I'm a mental health provider. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. I guess I should have said that at the intro. Um, and I specialize in women's mental health. And so huge, huge component. Um, so absolutely. And it's this panic. And I've seen, and that was like one of the motivation, you know, it's just interesting to us watching our friends go through this, um, that pretty much everyone in our social circle was over 35 when they had their kids. And like, I was the only one that had significant issues, <laughs> truthfully. I mean, Emma did have um, two miscarriages that were devastating and I'm not making light of that. And then everyone else we knew, like pretty much, you know, for the most part, got, I mean, at least as far as I know, got pregnant fairly easily. And, and then again, what is easily? Because if you're thinking that getting pregnant the first time and you don't do that, it's a problem. No, you don't have a problem. The first three months is, is, you know, not a problem, but you know, getting pregnant in the first six months or so of trying is, is pretty easy. And so what's your definition of easy? And then how does it translate? How does the, your whole outlook on life translate to this? And like you said, like if you're an impatient person to begin with, well, then this is a great lesson in patience. Mm -hmm. um, my husband and I went into it expecting it to be longer because we have family histories of infertility and we just kind of knew, like there was just something innately that we knew. Now going back, I'm a huge law of attraction person and I saw that one of your um, group member members who are like our, our coaches yep coaches is into that too i was really happy to see that and i really feel like that was a mistake to just take on that mindset because i think that that could have had a factor there are many factors but what people want is a quick fix at least in the united states what people want is a very quick explanation and we hope through our book and our work to just really help people understand that all babies conceived and born healthy are true miracles you know, because you can do everything right and things go wrong. You can do everything wrong and things go right. And we just don't have all the answers. Western medicine certainly doesn't have all the answers, but quite frankly, I don't think anything, you know, things are bigger than us and we have to hold space for that. And then I think also, you know, so there's that wanting a quick fix and being able to say, well, just do this treatment. It's a quick fix when it's not, like you said, only 30% of IVF cycles work statistically, although there might be clinics that have higher success rates. But then I would argue, are they taking, what patients are they right. taking? You know, cause I went through Johns Hopkins and they take everybody. I went there cause my insurance actually covered us there. Uh, but it was a wonderful experience because they were like no pressure. They just followed us where we wanted to go and gave us the information. But then also they, they treat everyone um, where there are clinics that they don't treat you if you're obese. They don't treat you if you're over 40. You know, it's so, you know, who are they taking? Um, yeah, and then I think also just not wanting to put that work in. Like people, they want a quick answer and they want a quick fix. And so if you start talking about root causes and you start talking about all the factors that could affect your fertility, then that might be too much for some people. Yeah, like I've spoken to women that have done six, seven, eight rounds of IVF and then mm -hmm. having a quick half hour conversation with them. I'm like, there's a whole bunch of red flags on thyroid, like people not getting full thyroid panels, vitamin D that's low, like a whole, they've been on birth control for 20 plus years, all sorts of red flags. And you're on IVF number seven and no one's even dug deeper, which to me right. insane and extremely expensive. And I did interview uh, Bettina Gordon and she had, um, I think similar to you, uh, doc, uh, Dr. Christiane Northrup left a, a, had a recommendation for her book and cool. talked about, yeah, and talked about the further up the chain of education you are, the more master's degrees, doctorates you have, the, I guess the harder it is to actually get into the whole mindset piece and to believe this is going to happen. But yeah, with the IVF, if you've, you've gone through all these different treatments and then haven't stopped to say, well, why at the age of 38, you know, am I not able to have a baby? Or if it's, if it's, if it's secondary infertility, let's stop and put a pause on this. And it's not pausing and sitting on the sofa and doing nothing. It's actually looking at the root cause. 
Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And one of the things that we offer in our work is a decision-making guide because it is a rabbit hole and there is this external pressure and being able to just stop and say, how do these decisions align with my core values? And why am I doing this? Why am I buying into this? What is it that I really believe? And being okay with that, being one of the things that we found, so what, and segueing a little bit, I hope that's okay. The book is composed of narratives from including Emma and myself, I guess it's 11 women, and all radically different reasons for being moms over the age of 35. So there are people like me who always, always wanted to be a mom. And I just met my partner when I was 30. We got married when I was 33. We start, he wanted to wait six months, which seemed totally reasonable. So I was then 34. Like all of this seemed like really reasonable to me. And I, I, it wasn't like I was delaying motherhood. I just, you know, I didn't want to marry the first guy I met. And then there were women who were very, very ambivalent about motherhood and put a lot of thought into it. And then there were people that were just, their life just didn't work out that way. You know, they, they married somebody in their 20s and then ended up divorced and then were more cautious the second time around. So lots and lots of reasons. Not We weren't all career crazy women. But what we all found is that people, the, the sanctity of motherhood and really being very conscious about it and really taking that pause and not just saying, okay, I went to college, now I'll get married, now I'll pop out two kids and just really thinking about it and applying that to your fertility journey as well, I think is so important, being mindful. And at the end of the day, if you have to stop everything for three months to figure it out, that's not going to change anything. It really won't. I promise you that. I promise you that your body is not that so in tune to time. You know, time is a construct of the, of the world. We've created that. And we know that because, right, I'm speaking to, I think we're in a different time zone. Maybe I'm not sure. <laughs> I should know this. Um, Ireland, yeah, where's, uh, are you Eastern? I'm Eastern Standard Time. Okay, so so we're in the same time zone, right? But in California, our friends in California are just waking up, right? So it's all construct, right? It's all what's, you know, 10.41 a.m. here is 6.41 a.m. in Alaska and 7.41 a.m. in California. Are you struggling to have your baby? First of all, know that my heart goes out to you. I struggled with infertility just like you. So I want you to answer a question for me. Do you want to improve your chances of having a healthy baby? So if the answer is yes, then I'd love to help you. And I'd like to help you do it for free. So go to fabfertile, dot com and click on book a free call. So here's how it works. Right at this very second, you're probably stuck on one of these three things. So first of all, you're dealing with stress and constant worry. You're up at late, you're up late at night, scouring the internet for answers, leaving feeling even more worried and overwhelmed. Sometimes you find yourself worrying all day long, day after day, and the underlying fear is that you'll never be a mother. Number two, you're trying to eat healthy, stick to an exercise plan, take all the right supplements, get a great sleep, but life just keeps getting in the way. You have good intentions every week, but then you get busy and tired. And the last thing you wanna do is focus on your health. You worry that you'll never stay on track. And number three, you're preparing for your next transfer. The IUI or IVF is coming up so fast. You can feel yourself overanalyzing everything. You know you shouldn't be stressed, but thinking about being less stressed just stresses you out even more. You don't know which diet, supplements, or exercise routine will optimize your chances. You're confused and worried that this is your last chance to be a mother. So which of those sounds most like you? The good news is that whichever it is, I can help you craft a plan to enhance your chances of conception for free. I'd love to spend some time with you, so here's what to do next. Just head on over to fabfertile, dot com and apply. So it's a really short application that just tells me about your health, how long you've been trying to conceive, and how soon you'd like to be pregnant. Then you'll be all booked in and ready to spend the 30 most valuable minutes on your fertility ever. So go to fabfertile, dot com and click on book a free call. So it's a construct and taking three months off to just get yourself together isn't going to make or break you as a parent, becoming a parent, but it could really save you. It could save you heartache and going down a road you don't want. It could save your body through stress and it could definitely save your peace of mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Look, focusing on yourself and say mothering yourself during this time is there's, there's no downside to that. Right. There, you know, it impacts the health of your children it impacts your postpartum health and your ability to take care of your baby or babies. So yeah. So as far as if someone has a miscarriage, 
So the women, so this is from a quote from your book. So after a miscarriage, women, women's main fear is they will never be able to have a healthy baby, but there isn't research to support this fear. Right, right. That's absolutely true. There isn't research to support that. Now there are some women who have recurrent miscarriages and I believe that's more than three. And again, I'm not an OBGYN. I'm not a reproductive endocrinologist. So you would want to check with them definitely for sure. But the research having one or two miscarriages doesn't mean, doesn't support that you couldn't get pregnant. And what's interesting is this population in the fertility world, we have a bit of myopia here because the majority of people aren't, at least in the United States, over half of pregnancies are accidental. So the majority of people getting pregnant aren't like timing every cycle, really intentional about everything, knowing the second they get pregnant. (laughs) So, you know, the miscarriage rate, when you hear 50%, a lot of those miscarriages are way too early to even know. And you would only know because you were trying and we now have pregnancy tests that can detect super early. But the average woman isn't even going to know. She's just going to have maybe a heavier period or maybe a little bit later period. And I think one of the things that happens is people get into this mindset and it's really important to, to not borrow trouble. We just did a blog post. We're doing a series of blog posts. We loved interviewing people. So our next series of blog posts are just more narratives from other women. And the last woman we interviewed, um, Jessica, talked about it took her years to get pregnant. The pregnant, pregnancy was an accident. They had actually just completed adoption paperwork to begin the, the process of adoption. They hadn't been placed with a baby yet. Um, and she got pregnant. And her OB finally said to her, look, just because you had trouble getting pregnant doesn't mean that there's any reason you're going to have trouble carrying this pregnancy because she had, was just so down and so pessimistic. Mm. Um, and it just hearing that was so refreshing for her. So yeah, so there's good news out there. But of course, if you're having recurrent miscarriages, you would want that checked out. It could be like you re- referred to some kind of nutritional deficiency. It could be an MTHFR genetic defect, which is where women don't process folate the standard way. And so they need what's called methylated folate, uh, which is a special type. It, it could be a host of things, but for the average woman, no, it's not an issue. Yeah. Gut infections, iodine deficiency, and there could be also looking at a thyroid issue and getting a full thyroid panel done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are some things to look at for from if it's if it's recurrent. And so, as far as so, so if we are going through fertility treatments, how do we enjoy life in the, in the meantime as we're going through this? So hard, I know, because by the time you get there, you know, I feel like for the average woman, she's like, you know, I've already did the traveling. I've already, I don't care about anything. I just want to be cuddling a baby, and it's yep. so hard for them. But the thing that I really advise is acceptance of your situation, which doesn't mean being passive, but just accepting instead of railing against it, just accepting we're having trouble conceiving. It's not happening as fast as we'd like. And then once you accept that, you can let go of it a little bit. It's not right. You're not spending your energy fighting it. Now you're still taking steps, whether that be improve your gut health or whether it be working with a fertility clinic or doing acupuncture or whatever it is that you're going to be doing. But you've accepted that. So you're not spending your mental energy fighting it. And then you're engaging in things that are pleasurable to you. And again, that comes back to really spending some time, some quiet time thinking about it. So many of us just go through life saying yes to things, but really thinking, what is it that I enjoy? Do I enjoy doing yoga? No, I just go because my friends go, right? Um, Do I enjoy watching Netflix? Yes. So, you know, engaging in things that are really authentic. And in our book, you know, the women do a variety of things. One, One woman talks about this very extensive travel. They went to New Zealand, they went to Paris. That's great if you can do that. Most of us don't have the kind of money or the time to do it, especially if we're paying for fertility treatments, as we've already talked about, they're pretty expensive. So it doesn't have to be something big. But I think also if you could focus on things like knowing, having in your heart that you're gonna have a child somehow, some way, And then focus on the things that are going to be really hard to do once you have a kid is great to do, you know, whether it be horseback riding, whether it be going to movies, you know, or whether it be these big trips that you may not necessarily want to do with with a young child. But the more you do it, and, and we are very clear that getting pregnant is never a question of just relax and it will happen. I mean, if that were the case, nobody would ever conceive via rape. Nobody would ever conceive during wartime. Nobody would ever, people wouldn't have conceived in concentration camps. And we know all of these things have happened. What we do know, though, in general, is that the more stressed we are, the more adverse that is to our health in many, many ways. 
And the better health we can be in, the better our chances of conception. We also know, as you talked about before, that this fertility journey can be incredibly isolating. And the worse that we feel, the more we're going to isolate. And so if we can do things, again, to nurture ourselves, which is, includes these enjoyable, pleasurable events, activities, then the better off we're going to be, the healthier we'll be both mentally and physically, and the healthier our relationships will be. Yeah, when we're when I'm coaching when we're coaching uh, couples, we go through the circle of life exercise to kind of to establish their goals. And a lot of times, it's like the circle could be a little bit lopsided, so it's like hardly rolling. But it's kind of there's aspects of your life such as joy and spirituality or home cooking, finances, all these di different things. And a lot of times, people either have even re uh, relationships and social life. So being pulled away from certain things, things that you really enjoy, maybe you used to maybe you've enjoyed creativity so as far as your creativity you may have pulled away from these things and so you know as you're experiencing all this hurt and, and heartache to actually start doing some of the things that, that gave you joy and that you love to do and hanging out with friends and things like that as you know as you see fit not you know not all at once but to be able to examine that those sort of things that you've perhaps forgotten to do. Absolutely. And I think in terms of relationships, this is a really good time to, to examine your relationships because I think that women often engage in friendships that aren't very healthy for whatever reason. And when I, I used to moderate a peer support group for Resolve, the National Infertility mm -hmm. Association, and one of the questions that would always come up would be, usually it's not just you getting pregnant, it's usually like other people in your circle and how your infertility, your journey could affect your relationships, especially when other people get pregnant. And one of the questions that women always ponder is like, do I not want to be around them because they're pregnant and I'm not, or because... I just don't really like them anymore. You know, like what, what is going on here? Is it me? Is it my grief? Is it my jealousy? Or is it that there was just an issue in, in this friendship? Yeah. And my take, my, my hunches, you know, there's going to be ups and downs in, in friendships. That's for sure. Friendships are, some are for a season and some for, for life and some of the life for friendships. That yeah. That, that quote gives me comfort because sometimes I'd be like, why is this person, you know, you'd have, you bring, cause I'm, yeah. you, know, you bring people into your life and you're like, well, what's going on? A reason, a season, a lifetime, and not everyone can come along at, you know, with you for, for, for these different phases of your life. Absolutely. And sometimes it's really good. It's good to examine that. What I found is even the, the relationships that are strained during fertility and pregnancy, if they're really meant to be, they'll come back after you have the kids. And I've seen that. I've seen that in the women that were in this group. You know, they would talk about it and some of us have stayed in touch. And if it was meant to be, they will come back. But chances are it was, it was going to fail for some reason. <laughs> and, and again, as women, I think we always feel like we have to be nice and we have to care, take care of everyone. And this is a time to take care of yourself. And I always emphasize, you know, you will be a parent somehow, some way. And when you have that baby, you are not going to, that child is going to come first. You know, I say no to all sorts of things because I have kids. And I might make plans to go out, but if one of my kids is sick, I cancel the plans. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not unreasonable to do that while you're trying as well, because you deserve as much as you would give to your child, I think. Hmm, absolutely. So this is another quote you have from your book. Uh, so being affected by stress is not a personal weakness. It happens to everyone. It is actually a strong and insightful person who recognizes how stress is affecting them and seeks help. Absolutely. I think we're getting a lot better about reducing the stigma around mental health, but it's still there. It is still powerful. And I think being able to step back and say, you know, right now I'm not at my best. I need some help. I need some space is a very strong mind. And I see it as a mental health provider. The women who come into my practice are so brave because they're just willing to put it out there and work on these issues. And that is a strong, powerful, brave place to be. So I really encourage people to be aware of that. Yeah, because the more you stuff it down and just start seeping out through the cracks in the most unexpected moments, the next thing you know, you're either a puddle on the floor or you're yelling at your spouse or it's just, it's taking over your life. So to be able to have, to give voice to it. And then a lot of times it, then it can be able to work through it. So it's yeah. terrible in the beginning, but as you start to work through it, give voice to it, then it, it can, it can start to diminish. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, and a final quote we have here from your book. So acceptance is wholeheartedly receiving the situation. We may still feel anger, sadness, 
at the situation, but we are not fighting it. Acceptance is not about being passive. It's about being firm and brave. Yeah, so the serenity prayer is, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Absolutely. So simply meditating on something like that for five minutes a day, and if you, if God isn't comfortable, just universe, whatever, whatever, love, whatever, whatever is a comfortable concept for you, or simply saying, I wholeheartedly accept things as they are. I know that they are temporary. And that can feel really weird because you might not, you might be saying, but I don't, I don't feel that. I don't accept it. I'm angry. I'm mad. I want this to be different. Of course you want it to be different, but it's not different. You know, it's sort of like, like I have, um, you can't see me, but I have really curly hair mm-hmm. and it's very dark. I'm not going to have long blonde straight hair. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have long hair. It's not going to be blonde and straight. I'm very dark hair. It's very curly. I mean, I could put a lot of effort and work into making it blonde and straight, but it's, it's not going to be that without you know, a fight. So it's just, things are what they are. And it doesn't mean that you're not actively seeking help, but accepting this is where I'm at. And it frees up that energy. So meditating on something like that, even just five minutes a day will help change your mind. So that way, when you do have to go for an ultrasound or something, you're not like angry as angry about it. It gives, it starts to change your mind slowly and then you'll be more responsive and less reactive to things. And then that once you are, and I would then definitely recommend extending the meditation to 10 minutes to 20 minutes, even longer if you can do that. And I recommend using a timer. It goes easier if you just set the timer on your phone and just reciting that over and over again in your mind until you rest upon an understanding of it. And you'll know how that feels when you do it. People are always a little bit uh, skeptical of this at first, but if you were to just keep saying something like the serenity prayer or your own mantra that makes sense to you over and over again until it just sort of settles in your mind. And if you start at five minutes a day and then extend it, then that you'll carry that. And you'll see it in other aspects of your life too. So like if you're stuck in traffic, instead of being really angry about it, it's just like, yep, I'm stuck in traffic. Let me see what's on the news or let me listen to this radio or whatever you want to do. And it changes the experience and it frees up that energy that you were used to railing into something more positive. And that's when you can start engaging in the self-care. That's when you can start making better decisions about what route you're going to take um, in terms of fertility. I remember reading a blog by Randine Lewis and the infertility cure. And she had, Mm. there was a person that was going through treatments and she envisioned the sperm with little helmets on and they were going into battle and they were, (laughs) you know, coming for the egg. And, and so, yeah, it was very that constrictive and, and tight and really like, yeah, let's fight this. Whereas, yeah, we run mindfulness fertility groups and talking about meditation. This is something that I kind of struggled with for many years where I kind of got myself to about five, five minutes a day. And then really through giving these groups, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, if I'm you know, <laughs> practicing what I preach, let's see if I can get it up higher. So we, so we challenged the, the women to do 20 to 30 minutes. And so I, I challenged myself to do that and really does change everything. And for, for me in times of stress, it's the first thing I let go of, of, and so to be able to get into a practice of doing that and whenever if it's the morning or the evening for you, yeah. And I set a timer or I like insight timer has some good, is a good app or calm. Mm-hmm. And then and I also use a heart mass. So to track the, the heart rate var- uh, variability to see, because as I can see if I'm not really present, if I'm just running through my to-do list as I'm, I'm sitting there meditating. So to see kind of where, you know, where you are, but the meditation piece is key and to really adding that into your, your life will really change it. And you've heard it and heard it again, but it is putting some uh, priority to that and, and adding that in. Absolutely. And I, I recommend, yeah, the Calm app, app, the Headspace app, and then I, I'm not familiar with the other two, but they sound great as well. Yeah. And I really think everybody should be meditating. <laughs> That's my, my opinion. Even if it's just five minutes a day, it can really change the world. Imagine that if we all meditated five minutes a day. Absolutely. <laughs> and so as far as any resources, a book or a website or an app, anything you're obsessed with right now and are loving, obviously we're going to recommend your Beyond the Eight Timer book, but anything you can think of? 
Yeah, yeah. So there is an Instagram handle called Babies After 35. I think she does a lot of great stuff. Um, and it's all about people having babies after 35. I am a huge fan of Tony Weschler's Taking Charge of Your Fertility. I'm sure you're familiar with that one. But she basically just talks about, she really teaches women about what their menstrual cycle looks like. And, you know, then she, she shows you how to identify fertile times. And you can use that either to conceive or you can use it for birth control. But I think it's just a really, really sentinel text on, on the woman's body, definitely. That even if you never want kids, even if you're never having sex with men, you know, you don't need, you need, don't need birth control or fertility. I still think like it'd be awesome if every young girl had to read this book just to know how their menstrual cycle worked and what her body was doing. Those are my, those are my top two. I definitely love Resolve, the National Infertility Association, and... Yeah, so that those would be my top resources I recommend. We have a couple others, of course, uh, Christina Northrup's our, uh, Women's Bodies, Women's um, Wisdom is another seminal text. And I like the work of uh, Alice Domar in terms of mental health and fertility. I think she's does great stuff. I'm a huge Law of Attraction fan. I know that's not everybody's cup of tea. And there's tons of stuff out there on that. I currently listen to a podcast called The Science of Law of Attraction with Jules Johnson. I really enjoy that. But I think that that's pretty much a life changer. Mm, love it. Awesome. And as far as a success story you'd like to share with us, you've got lots in your book, but anything you'd like to yeah um, you know I think I, we have tons in our book so in our book we only did success stories because we wanted to be encouraging um and the book is about you know really helping women continue on their we, we found too many women gave up on their journey not because they didn't have the finances and not because they medically couldn't have a baby they were just too stressed out by it yeah. so we, we wanted that encouragement right and also total respect to people who just changed their mind on the whole thing you know no, no judgment there but and you know I think I, I'll share if you don't mind my success story yeah. if that's okay so you know like I said I knew I always wanted to be a mom my husband, he was more ambivalent. He actually sold me on this whole one child plan. I always thought I'd have two or three, but he's like, no, one child's the way to go. He totally sold me on that. So then after three years, and we had taken a real natural approach, I had, you know, tracked my cycle using Tony Welchler's book, wasn't ovulating regularly at all. So I started doing acupuncture, got me regulating ov ovulating regularly, changed my diet quite a few times. I followed the David Sammy making babies protocol. And then I did another book, Alyssa Biddy's Power Women's Code. Yes, thank you. So I changed my eating patterns. And I never followed any of these. I always did the 80% as perfection. I never followed any of these things perfectly because I just feel like, again, that's restrictive and it doesn't feel good. But like I, I took the essence of it and did it. And I got, I got, definitely changed my cycle. I could see that. And then at the year mark, we went for the evaluation and they found a giant polyp and the RE is like that's the issue everything else is great we'll just remove that you'll be pregnant blah 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 and she had recommended if I wasn't pregnant within three months to start Clomid and that wasn't because I couldn't get pregnant it was because she just knew we were anxious to do it at three months so I wasn't pregnant and we decided not to do the Clomid um, just to give it some more time and then at some point, I did decide to do the Clomid. I think that was maybe it. And the other thing I want to encourage your listeners is when you're in it, it's everything. It's like the longest journey. It's not going to end. It's, the, it, it's so hard. Once you get out of it, it's really, you remember the pain of it, but all of the details fade away. And even the pain of it is clouded out by the joy of having your children. Again, however you have them, whether it's through adoption, surrogacy, your own conception, you don't, that pain is very temporary. And I want to encourage people to know that. And the details, they're so vivid when you're in it, but because they become pretty insignificant later on. And, and I want to give people that hope. But so back to I don't know exactly when, but at some point I started the Clomid. I just did not like it. I did not feel good on it. So they switched me to Femora and I was doing some trigger shots too and monitoring some of the cycles. And then we did an IUI and it didn't work. And that was pretty devastating. And so then finally we did the second IUI, but we also were, you know, still intimate ourselves. So, and I say that because there isn't one thing that works and we don't know what worked, but I did end up pregnant. And I had a really joyful pregnancy, very easy. I was 38 when I had her. Mm -hmm. So I would have just been 30, turned 38 when I got pregnant because she was born in, yeah, 
the winter. Um, so I don't even know that, you know, but I was um, 38 when I had her, really beautiful birth, very low intervention. I did deliver in a hospital because that was my choice. I, I felt more comfortable with hospital birth. Emma did home births. So that was her level of comfort. I'm a nurse by training, so I kind of buy a bit into the Western medical model, you know, but I had no interventions. Midwife delivered the baby in a hospital. She was sipping tea. James Taylor was playing. It was really beautiful. <laughs> and then of course, after we have her, you know, my husband's like, I love babies. And I'm like, well, I love babies. So when she, I had a marina, a marina put in, an IUD put in because even though we had so much trouble conceiving, fertility is really variable. And we knew that. And I, I knew I didn't want to get pregnant like right away. And I really encourage women to, to think that just because they had trouble the first time, not necessarily trouble the second time. And so if you really don't want subsequent kids or you want more spacing, do use birth control. Don't buy into this. I actually know somebody that had three kids in one year because she bought into that. Yeah, God love her. Um, but, you know, and so... So we decided when my daughter was about, I don't know, 14, 15 months old, I had the marina taken out and she was still breastfeeding. So I don't know if I was ovulating or not. And then at 16 months, she, she weaned herself and we didn't do any of the cycle tracking. We didn't do like anything like that. And I just got pregnant when she was about maybe a few months later. And back to the stress piece, I was under an enormous amount of stress. I had my older daughter was in school three days a week, 24 hours a week, but I was working 40 hours a week doing various jobs. We were trying to finish the book. We were in the middle of moving. So, you know, I, I was pretty stressed out, got pregnant pretty easily, and then had my second child when I was 40. And again, very easy pregnancy. I went with an OB group, just we had moved, so I couldn't go back to that original midwife group. They were just too far away. And I was with an OB group and we had more monitoring, but I was okay with that. You know, it was kind of a nice to have. They did a non-stress test weekly, which is where you just lay down and they monitor the baby's heart rate. I think it was like every week for the last four or five weeks or something. Quite frankly, it was a nice break out of my life <laughs> to just go somewhere and lay down in a dark room and have them monitor the baby. It's like, I'll just take a nap now. And then I think the one thing that was different was they wanted to, ACOG has a recommendation to induce by four, week 40 if you're age 40 or over because of the risk of fetal demise. But the risk of fetal demise is still, the relative risk is higher, but the absolute risk is still fairly low. And I asked them to go an additional week and like they agreed to that. They were like, you know what? They saw me as a person. And instead of just saying you're 40, they're like, you're really healthy. Your baby's healthy. Everything's going well. So at week 41, they just, they scheduled an induction. And I have to say the last six weeks I had like blown out my hip joint or something. I don't even know at this point what it was, but I could barely walk without being in pain. So I was like ready. <laughs> I was like, all right, we'll go, we'll have the baby. And I was induced. I did not have an epidural. I didn't want one. And the baby actually had a prolapsed cord, which I'm not going to get into. She's perfectly fine. I did end up having an emergency C-section, mm -hmm. but it had nothing to do with my age. It had nothing to do with anybody who, whose baby baby has that would need that. It's it, even the, the most hippiest of doulas and midwives will tell you it's a surgical birth at that point. And she's, you know, I had her at 40 and she was nine and a half pounds, healthy as can be. And so now I'm the mom of a four-year-old and an almost two-year-old and I just couldn't be happier. I, it's the best time of my life. When people talk about like, well, what's it like having kids older? I think everybody's a unique individual, but the 40 gosh, I'm 42. Yeah. The 42 year old version of me is much wiser than the 22 year old version of me. The 42 year old version of me sure has less energy than the 22 year old version of me, but everybody's unique. And I, I can run circles around women 10 years younger than me, you know? So, and I feel at this point, I parent a lot better. I'm more confident you know, you're older, so you're, you have better perspective and you have more resources too, at least we do. Cause you know, both my husband and I started working right out of college. So we had already put a ton into our 401ks, that kind of thing. So there's a little less stress. I mean, it's, it's stressful living in the United States as working parents, <laughs> but you know, it's a little less stress in that couple that has like no savings, right? We at least have a pad 
and that's another advantage. But just really more the wisdom and the patience and the love that I have being older. And of course, the appreciation because my kids didn't come easily. And I know that. And I always compare it to like a homeless person getting a house. Like I'm very appreciative of having a home with running water and electricity and all that. But I could never appreciate it as at the level of somebody who had actually been homeless, mm-hmm. right? It's a whole different ball game. And so hopefully people always appreciate their kids. But I think that if there was a point where you, it was becoming very real that you might not have them, you appreciate it a little bit more. So that's my success story. I, I love being a mom and I um, really aim to help other pe- people who want to be moms become moms because it's just been such a great experience for me. Well, thanks for that. so much for sharing that. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful story. Love Thank it. you. Thank you. And so you have a sample chapter um, for the listeners and they can go, they can send you an email to beyondtheagetimer at gmail.com. Can you share with listeners what they'll get in that sample chapter? Right. You know what? Actually, I will have to, um, I will have to check with my co-author, Emma, because she is the one that put it together. But all of our chapters have one woman's narrative. You know, actually, I'm going to hold on that. It'll be a surprise. I'm not exactly sure which chapter she did, but we will send you a chapter. The other thing you could do is go through our website, beyondtheagetimer.com, and also contact us that way for it as well. Awesome. So we'll have this link in the show notes and thanks so much for coming on, sharing your words of wisdom. It was a great, great talk. And uh, thank you. Thank, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for all the work you do. It's fabulous. So it's been a pleasure being on. Appreciate it. Hey there, Sarah Clark here. So are you struggling to have your baby? First of all, please know that my heart goes out to you. I support couples worldwide who are struggling with infertility to conceive and have healthy babies. Women like Rita, who gave birth to her beautiful daughter after following my fertility coaching system. Or Danielle, who after two failed IUIs was able to get pregnant after a supercharger fertility discovery call with me. So here's how you get my help for free. So I offer a free supercharger fertility discovery call. And on that call, I'll create a plan with you that is going to help you fast track your success. So this call is not for everyone. And I'm really picky about who I get to speak with and I have a strict but totally reasonable criteria that needs to be met in order for us to move forward. So here's who I can help. So first of all, you need to be able to explore your infertility diagnosis in a new light. So this offers for people who are open-minded, they're coachable, and if you can do that and want to double or triple your chances at the fertility clinic or get pregnant, awesome. So let's get on the phone and chat. Also, you must be an action taker. So someone who's committed to seeing results, you're able to follow directions. Don't worry, I'm not gonna ask you to do anything bizarre. But if you're one of those people who like to consume a ton of information, but don't like to spend time implementing and seeing results, then the call's not really for you. So I only wanna spend time with people who are genuinely committed to their own success. So just click on the link in the show notes and apply, or go to fabfertile, fabfertile.com and click on the free consult. So it's a really short application that just tells me about your health, how long you've been trying to conceive, and how soon you'd like to be pregnant. So seriously, this is gonna be the best time you've ever spent on your fertility. Looking forward to chatting. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to Get Pregnant Naturally. Seriously, it means the world to me that you're here. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so you can be notified of upcoming episodes. I'm excited to offer you a special gift. If you're a US resident, text FERTILE, to 345-345, you'll be prompted to enter your email address and you'll receive our fertility yoga download. In this 20 minute intro video, we focus on a calming and peaceful practice to connect back to your heart. These simple fertility yoga poses can help quiet negative thoughts and make you feel more in control. Download it now and get started today. So for U.S. residents, text FERTILE, F-E-R-T-I-L-E, to 345-345. For non-U.S. residents, go to www.yogafreebie.com to access your special gift. That's www.yogafreebie.com to access the free fertility yoga download. And I love this quote by Dr. Mark Hyman, medical director of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine and chairman of the Institute for Functional Medicine. Functional medicine is medicine by cause, not by symptom. Functional medicine practitioners don't in fact treat disease. 
we treat your body's ecosystem. We get rid of the bad stuff, put in the good stuff, and because your body is an intelligent system, it does the rest. Thanks for listening. Until next time.